0: Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, recently, I was invited to a Zoom discussion with some other World War I enthusiasts to talk about what we can do to keep the memory of World War I alive in these post-centenary times. Uh, with us this evening is Mike O'Neill, a gentleman who was part of that Zoom talk and is a longtime World War I aviation artist and enthusiast. But... We need to talk about Mike's level of enthusiast, okay? So let's compare, we'll compare me, myself to to Mike. So if you're watching the Zoom video, you can see there's a lot of World War I books behind me. There's a French poilu helmet, some Doughboy helmets. I have some barbed wire taken from the uh, old Samuel front and I wear the same boots the Doughboys wore on a daily basis. Not bad, I think, right? You know, like I'm I'm keeping the memory of World War One alive. Okay. But Mike here, as an aviation enthusiast, owns his own biplane. So I'm I'm gonna say that again in case if you're driving and you know you are you're coming onto the highway and you're paying attention to something else, if you went to get a cup of coffee, like I'm gonna say that again. Mike owns his own <laughs> biplane. Like Wow, that's um, that's just wild. That that is talk about like living your passion and 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 going for it. That's just so awesome. So, we will get to the biplane and what it's like to fly World War One era aircraft. But let's get started by finding out about how Mike got into World War One, the journals and organizations he is a part of, the development of his artwork, and then his flying. Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having
0: me. Um, so, Mike, how did you get into World War I, and how old were you at the time? So, basically, the, the email you wrote to me last week, uh, just go ahead and just tell us all about that. Because <laughs> folks here are Because, because not
1: that. everybody was in on the email. That's um, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, this this interest for me started... Um, sometime in my teen years, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, and I don't have any family background that would suggest that I would have an aviation interest or this kind of interest in, in aviation history. And um, I, I found that um, I read a couple books on Rick Toffen, I read a book on Rickenbacker, um, which kind of fascinated me. And in one, a book called uh, The Fighters by a guy named Thomas Funderburg, which is a really great, really great World War I. Aviation book. Yeah. If you haven't read that one, that's a great one because Funderburg had uh, the opportunity to interview a bunch of surviving pilots at the time. So there's a lot of really great firsthand material in the book. Anyway, in that book, there was a mention of a national uh, society of World War I aviation historians. And the journal that they published was called Cross and Cockade Journal. And that was started in the 1960s by a bunch of enthusiasts on the West Coast. Um, I was 15, I think at the time that I joined the journal, I remember it was $8 a year and it was all I could do to scrounge up eight bucks to join the the society. And when the journal came, it was great. I mean, it was the stuff I had been reading at the library was kind of generalized, you know, biographies and it wasn't very highly technical and there wasn't a lot of detail. Um, it was more like pulp aviation kind of stuff from the style in the thirties where it was exciting enough, but it just didn't have any meat. And when the journal came, it was very technical, very detailed, very, to me, very, very, very interesting. And, um, and the, and the articles in it were still accessible by somebody like me, 15 years old when I didn't have I I didn't have a high school degree, let alone a degree in, in history. And this journal kind of kind of opened up the door of what's possible to study in this, in this field. So in the journal, fortunately, they published the list of journal editors. And um, I just, I lived in Trenton, New Jersey at the time. And the closest editor to me was a guy named Bill Bailey, Frank Bailey. Um, everybody called him Bill. And so I wrote him a letter and said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 16, I'm interested in World War I aviation history, I'm I subscribed to the journal, I think it's great, you know, this is really something that's fascinating the heck out of me. And he he did something that uh, that I find uh, myself doing now, and I find that people who are looking to perpetuate the interest in this um, at, our, at our level uh, of, of experience in this should be doing. And that was, he encouraged me to... To first off, come to his house, which I guess now is like, uh, might be sound a little weird, but he said, Why don't you come down and visit? And it's, I got on the train at 16 years old by myself and went down to Philadelphia to see him. And Bill met me at the train station and bought me dinner and showed me what he did for a living, which for most people um, would be like a snooze fest. You know, you're in his basement, he's got a big bookshelf behind him, just like this, and he's got his head down on his, at the time, before, as long before PCs were common. He's got his head down on a, on a typewriter type and stuff and showing me how to, how he does what he does. And somewhere in the conversation, he said, you know what, Mike, um, I've been talking to the uh, service historic in France and I call them, you know, I write to them. I talk to them all the time and I'm sure they're getting tired of hearing from me. But I would love if you would have helped me with this, this problem. And he gave me a self-addressed stamped envelope that had a letter in it that was a request for a dossier on a French pilot that he was researching. Mm-hmm. And he said, send this to them. They'll send it back to you. Just photocopy the contents and send the photocopies to me and keep the original set they sent you. I said, well, that's okay. That's fine. That sounds, like, that sounds like a fun time. I don't have to do anything. And I'm, I'm seeing how the process starts to work. Yep. And I got the material back and I sent it to Bill. And he, I, I'd send him one back, and he'd send me another one in the mail. He'd send me a letter so I could send a letter. <laughs> to and, and he did this multiple, multiple times. So the following year, 1977, an article comes out in the journal, which I am still, still subscribing to. I'm still scrounging up my eight bucks to, to get the journal. And in it, there's an article on a French fighter unit. And in the acknowledgments is my name as if I had done something significant <laughs> to to help Bill, who was at that time, he's he certainly nationally known, I don't know if he was internationally known, but he's certainly nationally known as an aviation researcher, World War I aviation researcher. And he credited me with helping with the article. For a 17 year old kid, this was this was really just over the top stuff for me to see my name and print.
0: Oh my God, that's fantastic. I, I was, um, one of the books here, uh, A Brilliant Operation um i used it in one of my episodes um i show up my name is in the um it's in the back like in in the sources used are you kidding like i was texting pictures of that to everybody like like i'm in it i'm in the book you know like (laughs) this is me (laughs) so it's i
1: totally get it i mean and also like yeah so that that kind of got my yeah so that that kind of got my interest um Going and, and, and in doing that, this leads into the, the larger some kind of lifelong thing that I've been doing. Um, Bill was working on French uh, squadron histories, which was, was almost zero published in English on the French at that time. And there's, there's still not a lot now, but there's, there's more and more coming out all the time. But at that time, there was almost nothing. And Bill was kind of pioneering that effort. And I asked him very naively you know, what, what could I, what, what is a 17 year old kid? What could I do? What do you, what do you think needs to be done? And he, he really said, well, I don't know. Why don't you just start locally? Why don't you just do something, you know, if you have guys from your hometown or and I said, okay, well, so this is the naive part. So I said, okay, well um, I'm going to, I'm going to get all of the bios from the guys from New Jersey together who were air crew in world war one. That shouldn't be too hard, right? The state is small. You know, population density was not in my vocabulary at the time, apparently. Right. You know, it was, we weren't in the war very long. We are only a year and a half. The air service was really small. This should be a piece of cake. I should be able to knock this out in no time, especially since I have people now that are willing to, to kind of guide me. And um, so, I, I, so I started out on my own doing that, and I, and I came up with 38 names initially, and then I told Bill what I was doing, and Bill sent me a list of the U.S. Air Service um, roster from 1918, of all the the, the uh, Reserve Military Office aviators who had been commissioned before 12 November, and it had 359 names on it. So immediately, you know, my project has blown up almost tenfold, and I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm still, I don't know if you want to use the word stupid, but I'm still stupid enough and naive enough to say, I'm young. I got lots of time. I could do this. this. This should not be a problem for me. I could, I could probably do this. It may take a little longer now, but let's see where this goes. And so now I have 359 names and most of the guys that were on my original list of 38 are on that list. So, so it's about 359 or 360, names, something like this. And I start looking for sources for this. And I find out about the records uh, National Records Center fire in the 70s. Yeah. That happened only a few years before I started my project. That essentially wiped out the World War I records, the National World War I. Um, I subsequently discovered that the adjutant generals, the adjutants general of every state are ordered after the war to collect unofficial service records. And so my next task is where do I find those And through Bill and some other contacts, I found out that New Jersey did that, that they actually had copies of those. And they were not available to you because it hadn't been 75 years since the end of the conflict. And they were still considered classified records. Interesting. But interestingly enough, I managed to leverage the friendships of a couple of people at 18 or 19 or 20. I forget when this happened to actually get a copy of the microfilm into a public uh, facility where I could go through them. So this gave me basic service records for almost all of those 360 guys who were in the US Air Service. And of course, in doing that, you discover that, my God, we had guys serving with the French in 1916. We had guys serving with the British. We had guys serving on the Italian front as American officers. And now the project, starts to expand and then I, and then of course i'm not accounting for the backseaters none of the gunners none of the bombardiers none of the observers none of those guys are on this list oh this is much bigger wow right so so the project so to cut the to cut the to the chase here the the project that started out as 38 names in 1975 or when six whenever i started this thing has grown to 763, I think it is, names of air crew who were residents of New Jersey when they enlisted in the Air Service. And these are just air crew guys. Forget about the ground guys. Yeah. You know, mechanics and so on. This was just the air crew guys. And I know that I'm missing many, 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 many of the backseaters, but there's no central source for those guys. And I'm sure I'm missing some guys who are in the RAF or the RFC or the French Air Service because there's no centralized, unlike what the U.S. did where they broke them up by state, which is my interest. If you didn't know their name, you didn't, you could, you didn't have access to the records. You just couldn't find them. So, so I know I'm missing some of those guys. So I suspect that all told, there's probably, probably 800 or 840 or something like this that I may never get to. And, and just parenthetically, today, July 22nd, um, is my birthday. Oh. And so I am, and that's not to, that's not so, Mike, that's not so everybody knows. This is to point out that at 61 now, that this project has, has consumed, you know, 45 years of my life. And it's, the project is coming to an to a, a close. Um, and hopefully it'll close before, you know, I, I check out. But, but in the, in the process of doing this, um, I, I think I've managed to make a lasting contribution that will end up in print of material that has not been available at all for families um, since the records fire. And along the way, I've managed to, to, to meet some of the World War One aviators. I managed, because I was young when I started this, and I managed to meet an awful lot of families who are grateful that somebody was actually looking up their fathers or their grandfathers or their, in some cases, their great grandfathers records and sharing that wow. uh, information with
0: them. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so before I forget, happy birthday. Um, thank, you. thank you. It's actually funny enough. It, it's actually mine tomorrow as well. So oh, uh, well, happy birthday. Uh, thank you. <laughs> wow. What a, what a great time to do the <laughs> podcast. <again>. Um, <laughs> but okay. 700 something. And there's even more aviators. Yeah just from new jersey so this is blowing my mind because I, I have to admit ignorance like i i um a lot of what i'm learning about the aef like it's it's like i'm learning as as i'm going along and researching these episodes like i i have a general idea of course like I, mm-hmm. you know i know we won in the end um mm-hmm. but like <laughs> but um but you know still learning a lot about the formation of the aef and, and i have this idea of um the American Air Services as this like very small group of like i i'm thinking like maybe a couple of hundred guys everybody knows Eddie Rickenbacker and a few more um right and um so this is you know blowing my mind about how many um so just 700 just from just from New Jersey but how yeah. many men overall in in the American um Air Services
1: so and I commissioned Commission, yeah, commissioned flying commissioned flying officers. Mm-hmm. There were about fourteen thousand commissioned flying officers. That is and awesome. the thing that the thing that's um I, I suppose the reason we have this perception that the air service was small is that a large percentage of those guys never went overseas. They were trained here and they stayed here. And, and of course, if if there was a curve of you know how many guys were trained and how many were overseas and how many uh, overall we were training uh, before the end of the war. The, the curve starts out kind of flat and then it starts to really climb towards the end of the war. So the, num- the 14,000 number is a little bit misleading because we see the guys, Rickenbacker and Campbell and all those, you know, those early guys who were at the beginning of this curve. Correct. Those are the guys that are in very early and those are the guys that end up, you know, for- helping form the air service and going, most of them to the end of the war, most of them survive. And then that big bubble of aviators at the end are guys who are being trained right at the end of the war, guys who got their wings before 12 November. And they were probably only in training for, you know, five months or eight months, something like that. So you've got this large mass of people who are trained here in the States. um, And then some of these guys end up trickling overseas, but most of the vast majority of those 14,000 guys never got overseas. So that's why we think that, you know, from the AEF perspective, yeah, the air surface was relatively small. And although it's not just a couple of hundred guys, there's still a couple of thousand guys. It's nowhere near the 14,000 that we ended up um, training. Wow.
0: All right. All right. Now you, um, so the the crossing cockade journal has gone defunct, but it looks like it's been resurrected. It's now
1: the international crossing cockade or over the front. So, yeah. So let me, let me clarify that the old crossing cockade journal um, which was a US publication, was established in 1916. The Brits also uh, established a journal called Cross and Cockade, which we distinguished by calling it Cross and Cockade Great Britain, also in 1960. And they're still going, they've, they've had a continuous run. Um, okay. The old Cross and US journal went out of business in 1985. I think it was 85, 84, I think it was 85. And some of the core people who were running that journal, who wanted to see it continue, even in another form, formed the League of World War I Aviation Historians and started a new journal called Over the Front. Okay. And that, that's the journal that has continued for the last 30, it's, it's in its 36th sixth year at this point. Excellent. All
0: right. And folks, links to um, Over the Front will be provided in the episode notes so, the, so that you guys can all go and, and check that out as well. Um, all right. Tell us about, um, I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, Phil Kissum, a World War I veteran that you got to know well. Uh, That's,
1: I, it's, it's funny, Mike, because when I called, when I was 17 and I called him, I had a I had a list uh, from the World War One Overseas Flyer Organization that listed all the, the guys in this group. And there was a couple of hundred at that time surviving World War One pilots with names and addresses. No phone numbers, just names and addresses. Amazing. When I called Phil in 1978, um, I, I did the same. His wife answered and I said, may I talk to, to Mr. Kissin?" And she said, do you mean Mr. Kissam? I said, yes, that's the guy. That's the guy I want to talk to. So, <laughs> so, so, I, so uh, I asked Phil. Apparently Phil thought I was a lot older than I was, I, and I, I must have used the right words. And I said, Mr. Kassam, I, I'm a World War I aviation historian, amateur World War I aviation historian, and I would love to come over and, and interview you about your experiences. And he invited me over. And you have to imagine at the time that I'm um, – 17, I think I'm 17 at the time when I go over the first time, not out of high school yet. Phil's 83. He's been a World War I pilot. He's a graduate of Princeton University in 1919. He's been on the civil engineering staff at Princeton for 50 some years before his retirement. Amazing. And he lives in a very beautiful old stone house in Princeton and so now you've got this grubby kid with a you know flannel shirt on and a pair of jeans that probably had a hole in them and a pair of ratty sneakers coming over to interview you. And you show up, Phil shows up at the door in a, in a suit and a tie and, and invites me into the house, which was good because he kicked me out, which was good. He didn't say, oh my God, I was expecting a reporter. And we had a beautiful, long conversation about um, aviation in general, about my... Uh, experience learning to fly because at that time I'd already been flying since I was 16 so I'm, I'm in the middle of working on my private pilot's license and I was very surprised to, to, to see how similar the, the experience and sensation of flying was between 1918 and what I was, I was going through and he's flying in you know, very primitive aircraft and I'm flying in Cessna 150s with radios and you know electronic navigation stuff, and you know almost 100 years of aviation experience behind the the process. But the 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 sensations of flying, the the, the excitement of it, the, the the beauty of it, the, the kind of um, confidence shaking things that can happen to you when you're learning to fly. Um, all these things were the same. Um, I didn't know, and when I have to say, at seven, 17, I was completely unprepared to, to, to talk to him. So I, the only thing I did positively, well, I did two things positively. But the first thing I did positively was I brought a tape recorder with me. And Phil allowed me to tape record us. And the tape recording, if you listen to the tape recording, you'll see exactly how naive and, and unprepared I was. Because most of the conversation was Phil talking and me going, wow. Oh, wow. You know, the, to me, this guy was a hero. Yeah, you,
0: you should go uh, back and hear some of my interviews. Uh, I, I still do that now. And, I'm- <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I and I know even at this age, if I was talking to these guys, I'd be doing the same thing. But, but what I also did was I brought a random copy of Crossing Cockade with me. I'd only been in with the journal for, for a couple of years, so I didn't have many to choose from. I just pulled one out of the, out of the pile and I took it with me. Mm-hmm. And when I got there and started talking to Phil... I told him, I said, well, this is a journal that I, that I subscribe to. It's really, it's the, the subject fascinates me. And, and hopefully um, th- you'll find something in here that would be of interest to you. And he looked at it and on the front cover was a photograph of a Farman two seater okay. uh, at the air base at Foggia, Italy. And it turns out that Phil trained at Foggia to begin with. And he said, I know that kind of airplane. And he opened the journal and in the journal, there were photographs, aerial photographs of Foggia, the field, the, the aircraft. There were people in the photographs that he knew. Oh, I remember this guy. You know, and it was just a, a random, lucky, tremendously lucky shot because I had no interview questions prepared. And the journal essentially ran the interview. He'd see a photograph and it triggered a memory, and we had a conversation about that. Fantastic. And that's how the interview, the first interview with him went. Um, Wow. Wonderful. Right before I left that day, Phil, we had talked about flying and he asked me, you know, when are you going to take your, your test, your, your, your flight check test? And I said, ah, it's probably as soon as I turn 18 because that's when I'm going to be eligible that'll be in July next year, July coming up. And he disappeared for a few minutes. And when he came back, he had in his hands, his original 401. one, Sterling silver, Tiffany struck pilot swings. And he, and he said, I want you to have these and they'll to, to Hopefully they'll bring you good luck on your, your test and which, which they did. Um, what I didn't know at the time was Phil had no children. Okay. Is, um, his second wife at the time had some children who were completely uninterested in Phil or what he had done. And subsequently, um, all of his World War I material, his wife tells me anyway, would have ended up in a dumpster someplace. Because if he passed away, she would have had it for a while. And then if she passed away, the kids would have just thrown it, not knowing what it was. They were not caring what it was. They would have thrown it. Right. Um, sometime during our second interview, his wife came in and said, Phil, you're 83 years old. What's going to happen to all your stuff? And, she, and then Phil's like, well, yeah, I'm 83. I I'm, probably got another good 20 years in me. Which she didn't, but you know, you, you're always trying to stay positive. Sure. And she said, "Why don't you give it to Mike? Mike, Mike will take care of it." And and I don't know how she gleaned that little factoid because I was still only 18 years, 17 and a half years old. You know, I couldn't take care of my own bicycle at the time. Went along <laughs> this valuable overall material. Right. So so Phil Phil gave me uh, his goggles. And um, I forget what I think there was something else at the time. There was two, like three pieces that I had, and then I interviewed him, like I said, twice. We had some phone uh, conversations, um, and then his wife called me a few months later to say that he had passed away at eighty-three, and she invited me to come over for lunch. She said my husband had some other things he wanted you to have, so I go over for lunch and we talk about talk about aviation. We talk about school and how I'm putting myself through school and a bunch of other miscellaneous things. And uh, she said the rest of his things are out in the other room. Hey, you're welcome to all of it. I'm, I'm expecting some little package of stuff. And it's his footlocker. It's his World War I footlocker. And inside of his footlocker is his flying license, his logbook, his officer's record book, every travel order he ever touched, photographs, the propeller tip from a Spad 13 that he flew. Unbelievable. Um, the sort of owner's manual for that same airplane with a serial number on the front of it. Uh, just, just a graft of stuff. The only thing that wasn't in there was his uniform, and we had had that discussion. He said, after the war, I took the insignia off. I used it as a coat, and it just got destroyed, you know, when I was working on the car and some other stuff. And this was apparently a common thing. But he had saved the wings and the insignia, and all that stuff ended up coming to me. Wow. And between the initial contact with, with Frank Bailey to start working on the, the historical end of things and the contact, the personal contact with Phil and a couple other aviators, but Phil primarily, um, it, it kind of cemented a, an obligation in my head that now that, I've, now that I'm in a position to memorialize these guys and to commemorate their service, that, that is apparently my mission in life. And I don't, I don't know that that was, I don't know how these things get started this way. I don't know whether it's, you know, some people think it's, it's meant to be that way and some people just interested. I don't know and I don't really care which, which position you take on that, but I know that over the last 45 years of doing this, I've met a lot of really marvelous people. I've had a lot of very satisfying experiences helping people understand their family history and in some cases, um, I've even reunited sides of family through the, their common history with a World War I aviator.
0: Really? That's you know, fantastic. They've been
1: isolated from each other for years, and, and suddenly Mike shows up, and all of a sudden, they wanna, they, both sides want to talk about Uncle so-and-so from World War One, and, and so now they're in the same building for the first time in 20 years, talking to each other and saying, why, why, why were we mad at each other to start with? We don't really understand that, but... We're glad Mike showed up because he helped us get back together through this interest of his. Amazing. So there's been some there's been some marvelous, I mean really marvelous, heartwarming, gratifying experiences that have come out of this uh, interest in early aviation.
0: Oh, amazing. Like it it almost like um, it almost does seem faded that that you got to meet uh, Mr. K- Kassam before before he passed. Um, okay. I'm just what what an amazing story wonderful um opportunity Uh, and and also like just just to connect with someone like that and and to i like the the part about um the the shared experiences that like the same things you're feeling about flying like he felt them back in like 1917 1918 like it, it just really goes to show like like um the old saying like things change but they don't change you know like um i um just recently read a book um Scarlett Fields, um, John Lewis Barkley, who's, he's on the ground. I'm going to do an entire episode on him because his, he's just um, – his story is pretty amazing. Medal of Honor recipient. Um, basically put himself inside a tank with a machine gun and took on a German battalion all by himself. Um, <laughs> uh, but when he's not doing things like that, there's there's a lot of other activities that most young men – would readily identify with. So it's like, wow, things change, but they don't change. Like, you know, if we were able to talk to him a hundred years ago, we would very quickly within about 10 minutes, you know, like hit common ground, like right, right away. So that's, that's just amazing. Um, Awesome. So now, so you're working on um, over the front um, and you've been working with them for, um, for a long time. So now like, let's talk about that that artwork that you have in, in the back there on your wall. Like, how did you, like, what interested you in producing artwork? And um, yeah. And again, like, if, if you have um, anything that you'd like to present here or share your screen with, like, please sure. don't, don't hesitate. Sure. Um, so how, how did you get involved in Like, have you always been in, into just drawing and, and art as well as history or?
1: Well, it, it, the, the answer to the drawing question is yes, always. And I can, I remember distinctly, um, instructors in junior high school knocking points off of tests because I'm drawing, you know, Fokker triplanes on my spelling exams and stuff like this. <laughs> so that, that part of it is, is true. The, but the painting aspect, I never painted. I, and I had no, I had real interest in painting. That was not a, a thing that I had studied for or anything I was interested in really doing. The, all of this, virtually everything that that's happened um, to me in the aviation sphere is, a, is an outgrowth of that initial decision to, to do this New Jersey project. So how many Fokker triplane, red Fokker triplane paintings have you seen? About a million of them, right? Mm-hmm. How many Eddie Rickenbacker's SPAD paintings have you seen? About a half a million of them. How many paintings have you ever seen of Phil Kasam SPAD? None, right? So, as I went through the New Jersey biographies, and as I'm looking at the the stories that these guys have to tell, and that I was privileged to to either hear from them or, or read through their letters or diaries or whatever, it occurred to me that no one was going to paint their stories, no one was going to illustrate. Their, their combats because they weren't famous. They weren't 15 or 20 or 40 kill guys. They were guys that maybe didn't shoot down anybody.
0: Right, they maybe weren't.
1: they only were ever in training before they got to the front and nothing, ever, nothing really exciting ever happened to them in a combat situation, which is, which is what everybody's looking at, looking at right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you rarely see an idyllic picture of a Newport just cruising along in world-world markings because it seems to be boring, right? Right. Right. But it's, but it's a part of the larger story that the combat stories are all very interesting and, and, they're, and they're marvelous on their own. But for every one guy that you've ever seen a painting of, there's a thousand guys who have no chronicle or they have nobody to, to, uh, to make sure that their stories are told, to make sure that, that the, the incidents of their life during the war are recorded and in, and in my case, since I had a little bit of drawing ability, I thought, well, maybe I should be the guy that paints, because I don't see anybody else doing it. I should be the guy that paints these stories that nobody's ever heard before. But some of them are interesting, some are very interesting. And some of them are simply tributes, like the, like the painting in the background here. This is, this is Phil Kasam's Spad. Okay. Nobody would ever paint that. But since I had spoken to Phil, that painting has a special meaning for me. But all these New Jersey stories, also have that uh, that angle. I mean, they, they they need to be illustrated. They need to be memorialized in that way. So in 1991, um, I I was reading a newspaper, New York Times newspaper, and in it I saw that Keith Ferris, whose name you may know, is probably the most famous U.S. aviation artist who did the B.C. 17 mural at the Air and Space Museum. Uh, you know, and his his art resume is 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 miles and miles long and he's flown in virtually every every US combat jet since the since the sixties till, till almost till now. Wow amazing um, as an artist, he was not an Air Force officer or anything. His dad was, but he wasn't, and his his disappointment in not getting into service led to him saying, well what can what can I do? How can I serve? How can I help memorialize the service of these guys? commemorate the services of these guys. And he said, I, I draw a little bit. Um, I've got a degree in aeronautical engineering and um, I think I can, I can probably paint. And it turns out that he, he turned out to be a marvelous painter and marvelous teacher. Keith and, and several other people started an organization called the American Society of Aviation Artists. And the, and the society's goal, their mission is to help foster um, the production and production of good art, good, accurate aviation artwork, um, and to help uh, aspiring artists be better at that. Aviation has, there's art in general and, 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 you know, those principles all apply to what what kind of art you're making, but aviation has special challenges and and there are certain things that you should be doing in the aviation spectrum to make sure that things are just the way they're supposed to be, just right. Tell the story and tell the story accurate in this case. Wow. So I joined them in 1991. I found Keith had this, this exhibition, as I mentioned, in New York City from the newspaper. I found out that he lived in, in New Jersey, not far from me. I wrote him a letter, sent him two photographs of two awful paintings that I had done. I thought, I thought were good. And he, he, he didn't say they were awful, but, but I later found out they were awful. <laughs> um, and, and, he's, and he said, there's an organization that can help you learn to paint better. And it's a bunch of aviation enthusiasts who happen to love art. And some of them are very, very talented artists. So I joined um, 1992, I think I joined, 93. And um, the academics that I got from going to their seminars, their yearly seminars, from participating in the Eastern Regional Forum and talking to artists who did what I did and who love aviation and art, uh, inspired me to be... A better painter. And subsequently, this is going to sound crazy, but subsequently, um, I was able to paint well enough to get paintings into shows with the ASA. I was fortunate enough to win Best of Show with a painting in 1997, which was not long after I started painting, which shocked the, you know, what out of me. And I ultimately was tapped to uh, be treasurer, vice president, and, and president of the ASA, which, which I'm very proud of um but that all that being said to answer your question is the paintings are an outgrowth of that jersey project and every painting i almost every painting i've done has a new jersey theme i there's you know two dozen paintings in the house um of new jersey subjects that you will never ever 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 have nobody else will ever paint we could be talking about this for another ten thousand years and people will not paint. Sure, them. that's fantastic and, and so that the artwork became an outgrowth of the New Jersey thing. So now I have the, the history end. I have the illustration end. And like I said, that that kind of... Um, the artwork end of it has also been really gratifying because there's been times when I've, when I've done paintings. I did a drawing for Phil, which I didn't mention, which just... Let me back up to that story just real quickly here. Phil, I did a drawing for Phil that I brought to our second interview, and it was a, it was a pretty – it was a decent drawing. It wasn't great, but it was framed, and it was of his airplane. I knew the, uh, the tactical number on his airplane, and it was an American Mark Spad with his squadron signature, his tactical number, and I gave it to him. And you have to imagine that Phil is 83. Mm-hmm. He's, he's within a few months of going west, and he's got a little bit of emphysema. He's having a hard time breathing most of the time. And we were sitting across from each other, just a couple of feet across from each other. And I gave him the paint, the the drawing. And he looked at it and he just went dead silent. I mean, the whole room got quiet. It was already quiet. Right. (laughs) But he just got completely quiet. And all you could hear on the interview tape is him breathing. You can hear him breathing just lightly. And then under his breath, you hear him say, Dear old Spad looking at this painting, this drawing. And it's as if he's looking at the, the, the drawing of a picture or a picture of an old lover from 50 years ago. Yeah. And that, you know, I was, really, I was really young, so I didn't really grasp onto that. But as the years go by and I listened to that interview multiple times, that, that really impacted me. The painting above my head, here mm-hmm. is of his airplane. And I only did it a, probably 10 years ago at this point. And the title of it is Dear Old Spad. You know, it's a kind of a capture of that the emotion of that moment when this 80-year-old fighter pilot from World War One and this scruffy-looking, uneducated 17-year-old kid is sitting in his living room talking about art and flying and you know World War One. And, and my tribute to, to Phil. All the stuff in the background, that photograph montage in the back is of Phil. Okay. Uh, it's hard to see here, but it's Phil and there's two photographs of an airplane. He crashed at incident when he was in training. Um, there's a, I'm just going to swing the camera around for a second. Sure. There's a, there's a, there's a certificate on the wall here. Mm-hmm. You can see it right here. Yep. All right. That was presented to Phil in 1968 by the Italian government. All the, all the, surviving uh, U.S. airmen who trained at Foggia, Italy, were given this certificate.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And
1: um, this was hanging on the wall of Phil's house when I visited him. And after he passed away, that was one of the things that Mrs. Kassam gave to me. So this whole wall practically back here is, is, a, is a Phil kind of tribute wall. There's, you can't see it well, but in the, in the black frame up the mm-hmm. top, excuse me, is, are the wings that Phil gave me Oh, I mean, a, seventy-eight!
0: Wow, what a what a gift! Like what a, what a, like what a gift to you? Um, but what a gift you you gave him. And I mean, like even at seventeen, like I, I know maybe you know, like at, at the time you you probably didn't realize what you were doing. But like what a what a gift you gave him in in recreating his aircraft, his specific aircraft, and you know and and you know I, I think he he really really. You really got him, you know. He said, Wow, that's that's just amazing to hear like that connection. And like for you to um like you've made that happen. Like you um, first of all, like this is like, hey folks, like let's get back into letter writing, huh? Because look at everything that Mike has made happen by writing letters. Like it's just you know, and just being brave, uh and um and you know, maybe even like a little bit vulnerable enough, like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to these guys and see what happens. Like, worst thing is they can just ignore me, but like, but they didn't, you know, and and look at all these connections you've made. This is fantastic. Mike. Wow. Like
1: what a really, really cool. It's amazing. The, 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 the older I get, I, I, I remember distinctly starting this project when I was 16 or 17 and saying, looking at these pilots like my older brother, they were, they were 19, 20, 21. And I'm thinking, man, these guys are old, you know, at 20, man, holy cow, these guys are, these guys are old. And then I got up to 20 and I was like, man, man, I'm just as old as these guys. And I'm kind of, I'm not in the military, but I'm learning to fly. This is what they did. And i and know a little bit about their, their lives and their, their careers and stuff. And, and the project seems like something I should be doing. And as I got older, you know, I got older, I had, I had a kid and I was like, you know, one day he's going to be 18 or 19. And now I, now I get the perspective of a parent of these guys sending them off to Europe or even if in the States to learn how to fly at a time when flying was, a, was a, still a very dangerous thing to do. Right. And I have that thought in my mind. And then my son got to the point where he was 19 and 20. And I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, could I, could I as a parent, endure what these parents were, were enduring in World War One, and, and, and for the aviation guys, as you know, a lot of these guys came from, from privileged or, or semi-privileged backgrounds. They were in big universities. They had no reason on the planet to volunteer to go to France to serve. And, and vast numbers of them did. And, and I wonder sometimes if uh, the, the people I grew up with, if I would have even had, it, with that background, if I would have even had the guts to do what these guys did. So the older I get and the more I, I learn about this topic and the more I see the impact of what I've been able to do just from, a, just from an interest point of view. This is, this is it, it used to be about me. Aviation is interesting. Combat's cool. How, how neat is it to see a Fokker triplane and look at it? And the older I got, the more I realized, that that is not the purpose of this at all. The purpose is not about uh, my specific interest. The purpose of this is to ensure that uh, the families of these guys understand the the depth and dedication of their family's own history, you know, their grandfather, their father, their great-grandfather, whatever, and to help commemorate the service of these guys who gave – They absolutely gave everything. They gave up, in in many cases, they gave up absolutely. I can tell you stories about New Jersey guys who were fabulously wealthy, who shut their homes down and left jobs on Wall Street, that their parents left jobs on Wall Street to follow them to France to serve in the Red Cross. When they had absolutely no earthly reason to do it, except that they felt a need to serve and be near their son who also had that desire. And, and apparently need to go to France to serve, and and there's lot and this is they're not one off stories. There's lots of them. So my my lifetime um, mission has been to help preserve those memories and preserve that that sense of duty and that sense of commitment. And and I and I think once uh, once this is finally published, uh, I I think that it will be abundantly clear that. These guys deserve every bit of recognition and honor we can give them, even though it's 100 years ago and people, you know, all of these guys are long gone and most of their, most of their children are now long gone too. Um, but the, the grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren, and even when they didn't leave family lines, their, their service is a model of, of what, what Americans can do right. when properly motivated... By a sense of duty and service, and and if I if I've done nothing else through this whole project, um, I feel it's my duty to make sure that their sense of duty is not forgotten.
0: What a, what a wonderful mission! Absolutely, I. Um, it's so good um, for you to 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 capture these these guys and 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 to remember them so that we can remember them. Um, in in you know in in when when you get, um, get all, get everything printed and everything into, um, into your book, but like, but just what a wonderful mission that, that you have of, of keeping the memory alive. Like just like the subject of our zoom call, uh, uh, last week, but like just absolutely wonderful. Um, and it is like, like there's a whole world with these guys that is now gone and you're recapturing a part of that and keeping it alive forever. And, and, you know, like, um bringing families together that's fantastic Mike wow that's that's amazing um it's, it's been
1: gratifying it really has yeah.
0: yeah now nowadays you work with the golden age air museum in uh Bethel Pennsylvania
1: I I do let me show you the official golden age air shirt oh no there we are you got the t-shirt to prove it that's yeah. <laughs> I, I got the t-shirt I went there and I got the t-shirt
0: um, <laughs> so you you work there now um So what are, what are some of the planes that are there? And a lot of it, like I'm not, I have big gaps in my world war one planes. Um, And so what are some of the planes there and what has it taught you about world war one era aviation?
1: Well, uh, let me give you just a quick uh, synopsis of the museum. The museum is a, is a volunteer and family run organization. That's been been in business, been in operation now for 24 years. Um, their their mission is to build, restore, fly, mm-hmm. and educate people about aircraft from the golden age of aviation, which is the twenties and thirties, and World War One. The init- that Paul Doherty and his father, who started the the organization, um, were interested in doing something like Rhinebeck. If you know old Rhinebeck up in New York, where it's a, in New York. it's a great Right? It's a great World War One venue. That was kind of like the mecca for guys like me to go. I've been there dozens of times just to listen to the airplanes and, and see how they fly and smell them and look and just sit yeah. there and, and be fascinated by them, like most of the aviation geeks. Right? Uh, I, but that same way, but but with tanks. So it's not <laughs> exactly we, we all have our weakness. That's, I, <laughs> I get it. Uh, but that that was the original idea. But but World War One aircraft. We're not. You couldn't buy a World War II aircraft project to restore unless you had a lot of money, and building something from scratch took a lot of time. So Paul and his dad started with two airplanes that they restored together um, before they had any idea about a museum. They, they had two airplanes they restored together, and they enjoyed doing that so much they bought a couple more projects, twenties and thirties projects to restore, and they liked uh, the pro- You know, they got five or six projects together. And somebody in the family said, what are you going to do with all these projects? And they said, ah, I don't know, maybe we'll, uh, I don't know, start a museum. Maybe, you know, just kind of flippantly, we, eh, we'll start a museum. And that's actually how the museum got started. Um, so, so the museum here is here in Bethel, Pennsylvania. It's um, exit um, 16 or 15 off of I-78, uh, 13 if you're coming from the West. And like I said, it's been here 24 years. We have a collection of 17 or 18 at this point flying aircraft that we have either built from scratch or restored here. Mm-hmm. Virtually every airplane in the collection has come in as a, as a project airplane that we've, that we've um, restored or built. Some airplanes that have been here for a while and in service for a while have needed major repairs to them, which we've done. And, and like I said, the, the organization is all volunteer run. So we have three Three. We have three uh, licensed FAA um, mechanics on staff. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them had inspectorate authority, which is, allows them to do annual inspections on the airplanes. And though that staff of uh, volunteers like me and, um, and, the, and the family run this museum uh, every weekend from May till the end of October We do biplane rides and restore stuff. And, and, during the off season, the volunteers are down there working on airplanes. We're, we're fixing stuff we broke. We're working on projects that we're, we're rebuilding, that sort of stuff. Um, I lived in Jersey for 55 years, mm-hmm. 54 years, which was obviously, you know, the New Jersey project. Um, but I had been coming out to Bethel to volunteer for probably 15 years and driving out every weekend. It was a two-hour drive every weekend to get here. I'd stay here for six hours. I'd get in the car. I'd drive home. Two hours. Oh, a long day. Yeah. yeah, it's a long day, but you. But think about it. You're, it's like driving out to a tank.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. You're tank for a couple hours, you're gonna go. Oh. You'll drive two hours. Sure you are. Right? So it's <laughs> the same course. thing here. I get to put my hands on airplanes. I get to fly a little bit. I get to do stuff that I love. I get to learn things I, I don't I didn't know about how these airplanes are constructed and how they operate. Um, I'm, I'm all in on that. My wife. Who was, a, who was an absolute doll, by the way, um, suggested that being in New Jersey and two hours away and driving every weekend was kind of a waste of time. Why don't we just move to Bethel? So we did. And we moved right, we were half a mile away from the airport at the time. Um, we moved recently. We are on the end of the runway now. We are like, if I, if I gave you the view out the window here, you'd see the end of the grass runway.
0: That's the airport amazing and and you know like um not only that it's it's also it must feel really good to have the the support from your wife like understanding that like like this is your passion and and she's she's all about it and all about supporting it like this is um this is really really cool this would be like like uh, my wife saying like you know we, we need to be closer to the battlefields in france which she yeah. actually has has mentioned and, and we're kind of like uh, how can we like make that happen <laughs> <laughs> but I get it. Like, and, and it's absolutely, it's, it's great, you know, like rather, you know, just, just to have that support. Like that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Wow. Wow. Um, all right. So I, now we have to, we, we've got to talk about your bike lane and we, we've, we've got to talk like, so how, how does one go about like uh, acquiring and, apply plane and then like all you, what's it like getting up in the air in in one of these things
1: like all all it takes it's e- they're easy to require all it takes is money that's all you got to do you just have to have money that's all, that's all it takes and right. then when you have one, you won't have you won't have any money. Anymore. Any money after any money that. that. It's like a, <laughs> old airplanes are like, you know, the, the thing they say about boats, it's just a hole in the water to throw money into. That's a, it, yeah. A, a yeah. old biplane is like a hole in the sky that should throw money into. <laughs> um, a, however, um, so the airplane I have is a, is a 1930 Fleet Model 7. Uh, Fleet is the company name. If you know, consolidated aircraft from World War II, the B-24s and the PBY Catalinas and all that. Uh, that was Consolidated Aircraft Company, uh, run by a guy named Ruben Fleet. Okay. Uh, fleet also started a civilian side, production side, of the Fleet Aircraft Company. And they had a, had a facility in Buffalo, New York, where they were making bi- these biplane trainers uh, from about 1926, something like this, um, up into the early 30s. Uh, they made outstanding airplanes, by the way. The Fleet Airplanes were just they're great airplanes to fly for a 1930s design. It's really, really, really nice. I mean, it's a nice flying airplane. And Mike, but, this is—is is this like so
0: a biplane? This is um, even in the 1930s. It's still what we think of as like a World War One aircraft, like open cockpit. Yeah. So, it, like,
1: yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. The airplane is an open. I don't have a photograph of it uh, in front of me here, but the airplane is an is an open cockpit, two seat, dual control airplane. Okay. It's fabric covered. It's powered by a five cylinder. Uh, Kinner radial engine. So if, you know these are engines that were ubiquitous during the 20s and 30s. They were used right at the end of World War One as well. Um, the The airplane um, has a more modern, I want to say, more modern modern airfoil than most of the Allied airplanes in World War One. But it has an airfoil that was similar to the German airplanes. They had figured out the fact that the fact that you could use a fat airfoil on an airplane. Um, to its benefit, the Fokker D7, the Fokker Triplane, you know, those, the Unikers J1, all those things um, had these great airfoils on, uh, advanced airfoils on. Uh, the airplane is, um, there's no electrical system in the airplane. Um, it has no upgrades since 1930. When you get into the airplane, it's 1930. It has the same seat cushions in it. It's the same controls. It's the same instruments. The engine starts by hand propping The airplane. Um, most of the airplanes we have at the museum are hand propped airplanes. So in, in addition, to, yeah, in addition that, to, I, wow. yes. And and get out of the way. And in addition <laughs> to um, learning how to construct airplanes and maintain airplanes and and that uh, there's this skill of hand propping airplanes, which quite a lot of us know how to do because it's a necessity at this right. field. Um the airplane, um, I bought the airplane in 2006, something like this. I've, I think it's about 2009. I don't even remember the year, but, I, but I've had the airplane a while now. Um, I, I acquired it from a friend of mine who used to work at Old Rhinebeck. Okay. And so so how do you get access to one of those airplanes? You have a friend who's looking to get rid of one, and he looks at you and <laughs> says, would you – would you be interested in in an, in an old biplane? And of course, morons like me say oh, that's that sounds like a great idea. I would love to do that. Um, what does that take? I had never flown a biplane before. I'd never flown an open cockpit airplane before. And um, so, so getting this airplane was a revelation. It was a revelation of of, of uh, flying from the '30s, but also it wasn't hard to extrapolate that experience what was going on in World War I because it was the same sort of airplane. It was fabric covered, it was slow, it had a round engine on it, it, it was, you uh, know, there's no heat in it. You think to yourself, the only thing between you and the outside environment here is that fabric, and that was how it was in World War I. Um, right. There's no electrical system in the airplane. You, 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 all these things are going through your head. It teaches you things about flying you will never learn, in a closed cockpit airplane. It'll teach you things about, about appreciating what I still consider to be, after doing, after flying since I was 16, You know, long, 45 years at this point, what I consider to be the miracle of aviation. I mean, and it is a miracle. Every time I get in the airplane, I'm, I'm astounded by the fact that there's, appears to be nothing supporting me. I look at the wings and I'm thinking, you know, it's just wooden fabric. I, I, hope that's, I, I hope the Wright brothers were correct. I mean, they, they, they seem to have been, but, you know, you always question it. And, and so the experience you get in that airplane is a true 1930s experience. Now, at the museum, we have a bunch of 20s and 30s airplanes, mm-hmm. and I've flown a few of them, and, the, and they all have different personalities and different flight characteristics, and there's no kind of universal quality to them except that experience of that open cockpit experience. Okay. Um, because they all, because of the time, not unlike now, where airplanes are kind of cookie cutter and a computer designs them, and they have very little personal. These things were being designed by people who had sometimes well-founded ideas about aerodynamics and sometimes well-not-founded ideas about aerodynamics. Gotcha. And so um, the shape of an airplane, um, you know, the, the airfoil that was used on it, uh, the design philosophy between, behind the airplane is different from manufacturer to manufacturer, from from designer to designer and subsequently this shows up in the airplane. Um, The same thing happens more pronouncedly as you go back. So as you start to peel into the 20s and back into the teens in World War I, you see this this difference. You see differences in airplanes. It's why a neophyte neophyte could, could look at an albatross and say, that's an albatross, and that airplane over there is a Sopwith. I don't know what it is. It's a Sopwith something. I don't know, but it's a Sopwith. Okay. You know. And this airplane over here, this look, this is a Fokker. I don't know what kind of Fokker, except for the triplane, but it's a Fokker because they all have family characteristics that that, that distinguish them. Um. That those features are are, are kind of um, topical external things, right? It's it's what it's what the average viewer sees when he looks at an airplane. Mm-hmm. He knows what it looks like but not much about the the engineering behind it. And what the the museum has taught me, in great measure, is how how simple, in many cases, the engineering on these airplanes is, how how direct it is for the Germans, how complicated it is for the French, who over-designed everything, apparently. The Germans were looking at these in a very different way. and also how how these airplanes are put together with, with very basic tools and very basic processes. And you don't need a complicated shop to, to do repairs or to build one of these airplanes. The shop at the museum is, is probably a 60 by 60 square foot building. Um, it's got a very simple, simply a supplied wood shop in it. It's got a welding area. We have a paint booth. Um, we have uh, some metal working equipment, but not much, and virtually say everything. But a, but a lot of the work on the airplanes is done by hand, um, just like it was. There's, there's, there's of course, a, a significant amount of machine work done. You know, you still have bandsaws and table saws and all this stuff. Sure. But, but a lot of the work is done by hand. And, and wood airplanes, which most all of these were, um, with very little welding required, except for in some of the German types, the Fokkers all had welded steel tube fuselages. These airplanes require a, a level of precision and uh, patience. I have to say sure. that you, you don't find in, in modern airplanes. This is just like building. It's like building furniture that flies almost. It's the best analogy I could use. Interesting. So the, um, the 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 process of doing that has been a revelation to me as a as a pilot, but it all it has also helped to inform my paintings because now when I look at an airplane, I look at that spad now. The, the museum is building one and we've been building one for the last nine years or so. And I did that painting more than nine years ago. Now when I look at that airplane, that airplane, that painting, I can tell you 12 things is wrong with the painting because I know, I know this part didn't go there. And I know the shape of this is not quite like that. It's, it's just a slightly round more round than that. And you can see things that just the normal person who has not had that close contact with these aircraft will not see realized fantastic
0: um, experience but amazing and and all of what you're telling like just um the handwork the, the like the, the, the building these aircraft by hand like all of that just underscores that like frankly like w- w- what i see as um I, I know and i know it's science but like but i also see it as like like wow, what a miracle the miracle of like flight of like like you're right like you're up there and it's like you know i'm in a box of wood and fabric and i'm <laughs> flying through the air right now. Like, and, I mean, I, but I, I, I look up at the plane and I see like, you know, a Southwest jet flying over, you know, carrying two, 300 people on. And I'm like, it's just amazing that that thing is, is moving through the sky. Like I, I understand it's science and I, but like, I also like, wow, man, like, what a miracle that we can do things like that. Like what a, what a fantastic experience. So Mike, what's it like, I I know you said, so like the, the main experience that you can share from all of the aircraft with their different personalities um, is being up there uh, in the air. So um, what is that like open cockpit? Like I imagine it's cold and loud.
1: Like what is, well, are we wrong? (laughs) No, that's, that's, that's pretty close. Um, (laughs) It is, it is loud. It's so loud. In fact, in an open cockpit airplane, if you don't wear air protection, you won't be hearing anything in a, in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's loud. Really? Um, yeah, it's 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 loud. Even though I have ear protection in, I, I put earplugs in every time. I have a helmet over top of that. Um, the Airplane's still loud. You can't. There's no communication between the two cockpits in the airplane. We don't. I don't have an intercom in the airplane. Right. So to get the the passenger sits in front of me normally to get his attention, I'll kick the back of his seat and point at things. You know, that's how I do. So you have to brief the flight before you go do this, don't do that. If you, if you feel like you're going to throw up, you know, do it over, don't do it towards my side of the airplane. That kind of thing. (laughs) Wow. Uh, But the, but it, it underscores, it underscores the things I was talking about earlier. And that is the, that while in world war one, you know, what what we consider to be the crudity of the the equipment and the, the, the relative lack of maturity in development of it, those guys, didn't see that because as far as they were concerned, that was the stealth fighter of the day they were flying. Most of the time, the SPAD was the top of the line. You know, if you got a SPAD, that was just, you know, you were going to be unbeatable because that's a great airplane and it's the Mm -hmm. top, top design. You can, but we look at them now you say, well, that's great, but you know, you don't have a self-sealing fuel tank. If that thing catches fire, what are you going to do? And you don't have the allies don't have parachutes. So, if the airplane catches fire, you're done. What are you going to do? If a if a wing comes off of the, air, the airplanes are made, it, still made it out of wooden wires. If you get a strut shot out or a flying wire shot out, and the airplane comes apart, that's it's game over. You know, it's wow. game over for you. You don't get the bail out of the airplane. You know, they they didn't have um, uh, high altitude um, uh, like heating equipment in the airplane. There's no heat in the airplane. Right. And it's very rare that you had any kind of electrical anything in an airplane at that time. They had some some guys had heated flight suits. And this was a very it was a rarity, though. And they restricted your movement. So they weren't all that popular. Um, And they malfunctioned sometimes, which made them even less popular. Right. But you didn't have heat in the airplane. You didn't have supplemental oxygen in the airplane. And these guys were not operating at a thousand feet or two thousand feet all the time. They were up at 12, 15, 18,000 feet. And the FAA today requires you to have supplemental oxygen in a civilian airplane at 12,500 feet. So you think about guys, 19, 20-year-old guys, flying in these open cockpit airplanes with no heat, no parachute, no fire suppression, um, no supplemental oxygen, flying at 18,000 feet for a couple of hours, coming down, you know, and they're flying in the wintertime. They don't stop flying just because it's cold out. Right. Um, Flying in the wintertime. In in an open cockpit, where you are exposed to the hundred mile an hour breeze, not simply riding in a closed cockpit, you know. So so frostbite is a very real thing for you. Um, doing all that stuff, and then coming down after a two hour flight and not understanding why they got these splitting headaches, these oxygen deprivation headaches. They don't understand. They don't understand that at all. And and flight medicine is very new at the time. And the doctors are still working on this stuff. They know a lot about it, obviously, but they think flight is a is a unique thing and it is. Um, but you know, all of this, all of this stuff that we take for granted now is under development at the time. And it's not all of this well understood. And so when I fly in the airplane, I'm conscious of the fact that I don't have these challenges. I'm flying because it's a beautiful thing to do in a in a vintage airplane that gives me the experience of flying in the thirties when nobody's shooting at you. and I don't have to worry about the plane catching fire. I don't have to worry about getting shot. I don't have to worry about the wings coming off. You know, there's, there's 50 things I do not have to worry about. I don't have to worry about going up to 18,000 feet. I don't have to worry about freezing my rear end off. And, uh, you know, December comes around. I don't get ordered to go out and fly the airplane. There you go. Remember I put the airplane away and that's it. <laughs> All right, guys. My phone. Uh, I don't have to do any of that stuff. So, um, it's, it's a different experience for me, but it, but it does help to underscore some of the things that these guys experience. Now the, the museum has a couple of world War one airplanes, they have a Curtis Jenny, original Curtis Jenny that was restored. They have a Fokker triplane, which is a rotary powered airplane. It's got an 80 horsepower Lurone rotary engine that was built in 1918 and now powers our replicate replicate airplane. We have a part-scale rumpler, which is a German two-seater. Okay. Which I understand is the only one flying anywhere. Really? Um, yeah. It's it's a part-scale airplane. It was built for some kind of film work in England. The story's still a little muddy, but it was built for film work. And, and I don't think it was ever used. And probably the reason it was never used is because it flies off. It's a it's a great-looking airplane, it's a very interesting thing, and we fly it, but it's Every pilot report you'll ever read about this airplane says it's awful. But, but it is a cool-looking airplane. Hard to control? The, is, is that what it is? Like just it's, it's heavy. It's aerodynamically poor to start with. Okay. It's underpowered. And you stick those three things together, and you got an airplane that's going to fly bad. It's just a fact of life. Um, but it doesn't prevent us from flying it and demonstrating the airplane. So it flies well enough that it won't scare you too bad. <laughs> and there's guys here that fly the airplane regularly and just say, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's just slow. And you just have to know how to talk to it the right way. Right. Right. And I understand that. Um, the one airplane that I've had the, in the world War one realm here that I've had the opportunity to fly was the Sopwith Pup. Um, oh. and the Sopwith Pup is described by world war one pilots. Every account you read of Sopwith Pup say it is a delightful flying airplane. It is, the mo- it's the light on the controls and responsive, and it's just an, an enjoyable airplane to fly. Now, I started in Cessnas, which were in the 1970s, so you're a modern airplane. Aluminum airplane, enough power to carry two fairly large people, comfortable, you know, heat. My next airplane was a 1946 Piper Cub, also an enclosed airplane, but a tail dragger. 80-horsepower 80, 80 airplane, that one was. 85-horsepower airplane, that one was. And that was a, a marvelous airplane for, for doing stuff in. Um, if it was single-place, it was a great airplane to fly. Even two-place, it was, it was good. But it, it behaved um, not too far distantly from the, the modern aircraft because it, it's a 46 design. It's got a nice wing section on it. It's aerodynamically, it's pretty clean. It's, it's a nice airplane. It's a very, very nice flying airplane. My next airplane after that was the biplane, was the fleet biplane. Okay. And that airplane is an order of magnitude different than the Cub. It's, it's a bi, for one thing, it's a biplane. It's heavier than, than the Cub. It's a power-to-weight ratio. I think it's underpowered compared to the It's not underpowered, but it's underpowered compared to the Cub. It's a, still a great flying airplane. It has a, a modern, a 1930s wing uh, section, an airfoil section on it. And it still flies good. The control harmonies, the, 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 in other words, the amount of, amount of force it takes to move The stick or the rudder, um, the harmonies in the airplane are good. I mean, everything takes about the same amount of pressure to to do. And so from a pilot's point of view, it's a a delightful airplane to fly. And it's a 1930s design, which, you know, they're they're still struggling with things in the 1930s, but that is a, a really great airplane. The Sopwith pump, which I flew here, I've only, I have only—I have to say I've only flown it once. So you guys can fly it all the time. I, I've flown it once because my primary mission, my primary duty here is to is to—is to fly the fleet primarily in our shows. Um, but I flew the PUP and it's got a very thin wing section on it. The wings are very broad. The cord on it, front to back on the wing is very broad. It's got a very thin wing, wing section. Um, it's a little bit underpowered because it doesn't have an original engine in it. It's got a, a modern engine in it. Um, but for an airplane that is always described in World War I terms as a delightful airplane. If this is a delightful airplane, I wanna know what a bad airplane feels like because it's fun to fly because I'm, uh, I'm interested in World War I. Mm-hmm. It's fun to fly because it's a very different experience than flying a more modern airplane. But it's very like most World War I airplanes and, and guys I've talked to have flown a lot of different World War I airplanes tell me the same, same story. It's very heavy in roll. So when you try to roll the airplane, it's slow and the controls are heavy. There's a lot of control pressure that way, but in this aircraft pitch control forward, up and down, nose up and nose down. Okay. It's very sensitive and there's a lot of, there's a lot of rudder for the airplane. So it's, so it's good in y'all too, but it's sensitive in pitch and it's not sensitive in roll. It's heavy in roll. And so, you know, for, if you're used to airplanes that have good control harmonies, like the fleet does, or like the Cub does, or like any most modern airplanes, this airplane's a revolution, revelation. Because you'll put the stick to one side, and you'll say, "You know, in a modern airplane, that thing would have started rolling already." In this airplane, it's like, uh, "Okay, I'll just sit here and count." And then, oh, there it goes. Okay, good. Um, well, I better start. I better start undoing that. Yeah, I better start undo. Yeah, I better start undoing that now because it, ar- it took long to get like this. It's gonna take longer to get back like this again if oh, I don't start on doing oh, this now.
0: Interesting, okay. So, so and, rolling is like trying to, trying to turn and, and you know, now you're sitting at, a, at, a, at an angle and everything. You're yeah, and,
1: you, and in order to get it, feet. and since it's so unresponsive, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, now, right? So it's unresponsive, relatively speaking. You need to kind of, you need to kind of know where, where you're going next before you get to where you're going so, so. that you can stay ahead of the airplane to make sure you don't get yourself in, a, in an uncomfortable position. So this is and, teaching
0: you about, this is what a SOPWITH pilot must have been going through his brain, like um, while flying the airplane, while being shot at, you know, like that the plane is slow responding, but but it was a delight to fly at the time.
1: Well, the, the slow response is a relative thing, right? So, uh, so I'm, I'm working on a study um, as part of the the, the the Over the Front Journal. I'm writing an article, long article for them on casualties at this air base, And these, these guys are all flying um, Newport fighters. Okay. And they're sensitive airplanes. Uh, they're much quicker to respond than anything they've flown before. And the things they've flown before, like Curtis Jenny's and Farman's and stuff. And I'll bet you the Newport is still heavy in roll. but the things that they were flying before that were really, really, really heavy, really, really, really slow to respond. So, you, what we, what I consider to be slow, they would have considered to be quirky and twitchy and fast. And, and it's only because the the relative performance of it to what they were flying in their early training is so different. I get to Newport and I'm like, this thing is a, you know, it might be nice. This is kind of slow and roll. It's, it's not like a modern airplane. It's not like my fleet, you know, but it's a cool world of one airplane to fly. Um, so so you learn to you learn to discriminate those differences and 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 some of it teaches you to look at an airplane and say you know that one that one looks like it probably would fly okay it looks like it's got enough vertical fin it looks like it's got enough rudder it looks like it's got a little dihedral in the wings that that bend in the wings right okay um, that makes the airplane a little more stable that'd probably be okay um you know it looks like the proportionally looks good um and you know one of the rules of thumb for designing airplanes in world War one was was a completely um, completely off the top of your head, if the airplane looked, Tommy Sopwith said it himself, he said the airplane looked good, it probably flew good so there was some intuitive level of understanding of the, without knowing the, the internal engineering of things, but mm-hmm. the thing looked like, it, it's kind of like looking at a, a muscle car, right, a charger looks fast, you know, a Mustang right. looks fast, Well, they are fast uh, right. so they had the same thing in World War One, airplane looks like it'll fly good, well, guess what, most of the time that was true, it looks <laughs> like it flies like crap, most of the time that was also true that was so true. <laughs> so, but you can, but because I'm associated with the museum here, you had the opportunity to kind of find out why those things happened, why this airplane was was such a dog, or why this airplane was so good, why the Fokker triplane was so interesting, why you know how do you handle a Larone rotary engine? That's a a completely you know separate topic. On how many people, how many people. Apart from the guys at Rhinebeck and the guys over at Shuttleworth and the guys down at Peter Jackson's facility, how many people are, are every weekend or every other weekend learning the operation of the 1918 Lorone Rotary Engine? To see it run, learn how it behaves, start, learn what it takes to care for it. You understand what the guys were doing in World One, the mechanics who had to take care of these engines, the ground crews who had to start these engines, the things that the things that can go wrong with them, mm-hmm. things that are very, 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 very right with them from an engineering point of view that just don't occur to you normally. Um, but all of those experiences, all that, all the recreation of the kind of visceral experience of having your hands on these things, of the sounds of them, the smells of them, uh, the flying of them when you get the opportunity, all of those things, I think, help inform uh, my artwork, for one thing, but they also help inform my research because i can you know you you learn about things and you say why did this happen to this guy why did this guy get killed in a stall spin accident okay and then you say well he was in this kind of airplane and it was a rotary airplane and he's only been flying rotary engines for 3 or 4 hours you know you can you can kind of make some some broad assumptions based on uh, modern experience with the same technology so you read you read history very differently you read the, the pilot accounts very differently um, you read them with a little bit more insight, and, and I still, I, 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 have to, I have to not claim expertise in any way in this field because, because my experience is, is fairly shallow, but, I, but it's certainly greater than the armchair uh, historian because I'm able to pilot these airplanes and work on these airplanes and, and be around them all the time. So when I, when I work on things, when I read things, when I write about their experiences, I think I have a little level of insight that, that I'm fortunate to have from working at the museum. Right. On the same technology they were using in 1917, 198. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Wow,
0: amazing, amazing. Thank, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Zoom, zooming out a bit. Um, who are some World War One era pilots that we should know about? Like most folks, you know, we all know the Red Baron, yeah. uh, Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker. Um, yeah. Now, during that. That uh, Zoom call last week, um, you mentioned the, bo- the, the film Flyboys, which yes. we, um, we won't get into here, but... <laughs> <laughs>
1: but um but another podcast entirely
0: yeah um but now there is now i have i have heard of him before and and he is um he's a person who was like i've got to find out more about him um but you brought up the fact that one of the characters in in flyboys was modeled after eugene bullard right and um and um but i know that eugene bullard's story um in real life is is fascinating just just by itself can you give us like a quick rundown like like um you know so some other some other world war one pilots and
1: and maybe just a little bit about uh eugene sure sure that well to the, the, the answer your the first question about which world war one pilots that we don't know about that we should know about i know yes. 763 of them that you should know about they're all from new jersey do we know that? But that's <laughs> that's not where we are. That's a little too esoteric for this topic. Um, the, the fact that we mentioned Bullard like you said came up because we had a discussion about the movie Flyboys and how they missed an opportunity to teach actual history as opposed to make some Hollywood version of it that that touches on reality in some ways and then completely ruins it in other ways. Um, Bullard was a was the first um, African American pilot. And when I say African American he was he was born here in the states to a, to a father who, had, who was raised a slave. His father told him that there was a place across the ocean that treated everybody the same, regardless of skin color. Wow. And Eugene decided, that's where I'm going. <laughs> I'm not going to hang around in the U.S. To, to, to live the same kind of life my dad did. And he went to France, and he found it was true, that the French were, were kind of you know race agnostic. They didn't... Care what it, but the, there, were, there were all kinds of races living in France and they were all treated relatively equally. Right. And Eugene uh, grew up there and he was there during the First World War and he loved the country so much that he joined the French infantry and he was in the infantry and, and uh, I, I, I don't have details of how he got in aviation but I know he volunteered for aviation. He was taken mm-hmm. in aviation and, and, um, and served in a fighter unit. And his story just just up to there just up to the point where he's in this fighter unit as an equal with all the others and and the first African American uh fighter pilot is is unique by itself but he had a, an interesting story after the war too he stayed in France for a while and he was in a in a a jazz band he was uh, had a time as a professional boxer um, right. you know right. and, yeah, and he came back to the states later and he was here in the I think he died in the 60s sometimes he was here in the 60s and nobody knew, I mean, nobody knew, but people that knew him didn't know that he had this service in World War I, that he was decorated by the French, that he'd shot down an airplane, that, you know, he had this terrific experience in Europe. Um, he was working as an elevator operator in New York when, when somebody discovered that that's what he was doing and they, they were smart enough to, uh, to interview him and, and write down his story. And this is primarily how he became to be known. Um, but Bullard's, Bullard's story... Um, apart from the fact that he was the first African-American pilot, it's to, to us, that's a unique thing mm-hmm. to the French. This was not a unique thing. They, they, you have to imagine that 1917, they've been in this war for four years and you know what the casualties on the Somme and Verdun were like, yep. they were going through the same thing with their aviation service. You know, they were, there was awful casualties. Um, and they were taking any French citizen, you know the, the Lafayette Escadrille was was populated by American pilots. Mm-hmm. They would take just about anybody. And so, if you look at the the roster, if you will, of French airmen during World War One, you'll see uh, you'll see Indians, you'll see uh, not American Indians, you'll see Amer- there were American Indians in the U.S. Air Service, by the way. Mm-hmm. But they had, they had Indians, they had they had, uh, colored, they had um, they had Chinese, they had Japanese, they had Portuguese. They had uh, English uh, fighter pilots who couldn't get a couldn't get in the RAF. They had Polish fighters. They they had nationalities, Russians. They had they had people serving with them that that remain in obscurity because they were these kind of one-offs or two-offs from someplace. Right. Wow. Um, oh. you know, the Japanese. Did did anybody even know the Japanese had a single fighter pilot in World War One? Did anybody know that? Did me. Did anybody know that that one of the fighter pilots? One of the Japanese fighter pilots in World War One, a guy named Kiyotake Shigeno, um, served in the same unit as Georges Guynemer, who was French's leading ace at the time he died with fifty-three victories. Right, right. He was he was credited. Shigeno was credited with a shared victory with Guynemer. He was in the same unit with him. So you had these kind of um, heterogeneous units with all kinds of nationalities flying in them um, for a common cause, obviously for the freedom of France. At the time. And, um, and, and their stories are fascinating all by themselves because they're, you know, they're, they're from all walks of life. There's some guys have been invalided out of the service. They came from the infantry where they, you know, like Gienemere was, was a real sickly kid and, and had a hard time getting into the service and finally managed to be a mechanic and then finally managed to get into pilot training and look what happened with him, you know, 5th Wow. Um, so these, all these stories, again, all these stories of service of these more obscure guys, um. But I'll give, you, I'll give you just a couple of names that I think are important to know. If okay. All the World War I aviation guys are going to go, yeah, yeah, I know about him. Or, uh, yeah, I know about him. <laughs> but this is, for the, this is for the rest of the lay people out there who, who, are, who are saying, I know Rick Coffin, I know the Brad Baron. I know Eddie Rickenbacker. I may even know Frank Luke, the balloon busting, American balloon buster. I may know him. Yep. Um, but names you should know. Um, who were important in in aviation in general? Important in in aviation. world the one George Guinier, who I pointed out, uh, Roland Garros, who was another French fighter pilot, one okay. of the first first aces. If you are a fan of tennis and watch the French Open, it is played in Garros Stadium. That is not a coincidence. It was named after Garros. He was a pre-war tennis star. Um, Oswald Bulka, German, okay. who essentially developed concept of the homo- the, uh, the homogeneous uh, fighter unit where, where where remember more than one everything was being invented for the first time when aviation was new there were no such thing as fighter units there was no kind of unit uh, unit tasked with uh, specifically with interdiction duties like that that was balka 's idea um, so the first fighter units um, if you're looking for the British side, you've got um, uh, James McCudden, okay. 57 victory ace. You got Albert Ball, who was a 44 victory ace. Okay. Both, both two of their top aces. McCudden probably had more influence on uh, fighter tactics than, than most on the British side. Um, and Ball was one of their one of their leading aces. He was the leading ace when he died, in fact. Okay. Uh, May of 19- uh, active in promoting their races. You know, there was no big splashy news about their races. The French loved doing it. The Germans actually made up postcards of the races that you can still get, which were, which were amazing. Wow. But, um, but the British wanted to that. we're cutting and ball on that side. Um, Luke and Rickenbacker on our side, mm-hmm. Molka, uh, Richtofen, Richtofen had a brother named Lothar, by the way, who was a 40 victory ace. Most oh, not, you know, Oh, who survived the war. Um, you have, uh, Bulk, like I said, you have Max Immelman, who was e- another early ace. Curve yep, curve. The Immelman, the Immelman, He's credited with the Immelman turn, but nobody's ever really sure that he ever did one. Because um, in the airplanes, he's flying. It's not even, I'm not even sure it's possible to do it. There you go.
0: Okay. Another World War I story, sounds like.
1: <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, so you have those guys. Um, you have Francesco Baracca, who was a leading Italian ace. Oh, uh, Silvio Scaroni, another Italian ace whose uh, story is interesting. You have Willy Coppens, who was the the leading Belgian ace. Okay, that's an interesting story. Um, Jan Oliestraegers, which was another uh, Belgian ace. You know, I could go down a list of aces, but but the point is that every every nation that, that supplied pilots have have people that have stories that deserve to be told, and some of these guys. Have books written about him. You know, Ball has a book. McCutton has a book. Von Richthofen has more books than probably everybody else combined. Sure. Bulka Bolka has a, a a wonderfully researched book that is very hard to get a hold of now because there's only I think there's only 100 copies of it printed. Oh. And my good friend uh, Lance Browning can which is an encyclopedia essentially of Bulka's life. It's it's definitive in every direction. Um, but these guys are all all, all these guys have. Have stories. All these guys have interesting stories, I think, and all of these guys deserve a little bit of cred. So if you're if you're out there looking to research somebody, um, there's a great website called the aerodrome.com, www.theaerodrome.com, which is dedicated to World One Aviation. It's got a great chat section on it, but it's also got um, a great research section on it that has the aces from every nation. And if you're interested in any of these guys, you get a short bio on there. And what that typically leads to, as you know, is a, a five month research project on a guy who has a name that sounds similar to yours. or Absolutely. One of your girlfriends or, you know, yeah. so, so if you want to pick, if you want to pick a, a guy that needs to be, be looked at, pick somebody you never heard of, go to that list, pick somebody you never heard of and, and uh, see if you can't find out more about him. Ah, super cool.
0: Excellent. Thank you. I'll, we'll add that. Um, aerodrome.com will add that to the episode notes. Um, so folks can, can look Beautiful. it up. Um, wow, Mike, final question of the evening here for you. Um, any, any projects for the future or, um, or are you continuing to work like it, your, your project for the new, New Jersey aviators? Does that just continue to evolve? And and that is, um, the continuing project for the. Future? <laughs> so,
1: yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, so, I have, as you, because I have all these disparate interests that, are, that all revolve around the same subject, um, the, the immediate project at the museum, at the Golden Age Air Museum, is the completion of the SPAD, the full-scale SPAD that we're working on. Okay. And that's probably about a year away. And I have to say that of all the airplanes that we have and that, the airplanes that we've built and the airplanes that we fly, that is one airplane that I have a very strong interest in flying because it would complete the circle between that 16 year old kid and that 83 year old SPAD pilot I met, you know, Phil Cassan, that would put me in a, in the seat where he was in 1918. Right. Um, so that's, that's the, the airplane project, the research projects are, the, the New Jersey project just keeps going because uh, as you know, any project of that size can go on forever. There has to be a point where you kind of say, "This is the end of the project for now." and if somebody wants to take up the reins later, good luck. Right with that. You know I'll be happy to see somebody advance whatever I do. Um, but I'm also the editor, the managing editor at the moment for Over the Front," which is the journal. And that duty um, absorbs a lot of my research time, because I'm constantly either trying to produce an issue that I'm responsible for, or I'm editing the work of others who are producing work for the journal. And it's a quarterly journal. So there's 96 pages in each journal and about 90 of that, 92 of that is uh, is research on a variety of interesting topics. And that absorbs a lot of my time. Um, so, so what projects am I working on? I'm working on projects for the journal. I'm trying to, I'm trying to develop content. Like I mentioned the Isidin project that I was I alluded to that's for the journal. Um, I'm working on a project. How do I know about the Japanese aviators? Guess what? I'm working on a project. How do I know about the American Indian, the native American aviators in the U S air service? I'm working on a project. Right. And these are things that are all destined for the journal based, based on things that, that kind of piqued my interest over the years. And now that I have a way to get that stuff in print, and I think a lot of it's really important because it's they're obscure stories that no, you know, who who knew there were American Indians in the U.S. Air Service? I Just learned that here this evening. I didn't, I've been doing this for forty-five years. I didn't know that until about ten years ago. Wow! So um, You know, those those are the things I'm working on now. Um, and like I said, the most the, the most pressing things I'm working on during the summer, at least, are are being at the museum, working on the SPAD. Um, working on the other airplanes there, helping run the events that we run. There's a World War I event coming up Labor Day weekend. That'll be World War One uh, centric. We have the East Coast Doughboys, who you may be right. familiar with, mm-hmm. coming out. We have, uh, we'll fly all our World War I airplanes that weekend. Um, we'll fly all our 19s and 20s airplanes that weekend as well, but, but it'll be a World War I centric kind of a big encampment with the World War I airplanes being the stars of the show. Um, so if, so if you have an interest in World of One, and I'm, I'm suspecting if you could, you've you sat through this podcast for an hour and whatever <laughs> it's taken us, Absolutely. Um, if you have an interest, um, that would be a, an, an ideal weekend to, to come out to see what the museum is like and tour the facilities and see these airplanes run and get to hear them. And um, It's really a great time. So Labor Day weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday, both days, will be flying. And like I said, it's in Bethel, Pennsylvania. It's about if, if you... You get across the Delaware, if you're from Jersey and you get to the Delaware, it's exactly an hour out on I-78, it's midway between Harrisburg and Allentown on I-78. All right. All right. I'm trying to think of, I'm in
0: the um, Boston area, so maybe five, five six hour drive. Yeah, about,
1: about that. Yeah. Wow. There's right. there's lodging nearby. There's it's, We're out in the country, but there's still lodging nearby. So if you decide to come out, there's places to stay. Oh, super
0: cool. Cool. Mike- Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for for taking time out of your evening um, to to come on the podcast um, and to just, I have learned an incredible amount in this last um, hour, hour and a half here. Like, it's been awesome. Like, uh, again, like Japanese pilots, um, Native American pilots. Um, so amazing, amazing. Um, thank you so much. We're, we're going to get these links up on the um, uh, episode notes so that folks can... Um, Find out more and find out more about this the Liberty Weekend on at the uh, Golden Age uh, Air Museum um, through their website. So um, awesome! Thank thank you so so much. Thank you so much for and and this is doing a lot. I'm I'm sure this is going to spark a lot of interest in um, uh, aviation enthusiasts. So folks, please don't don't hesitate to reach out. Um, If You have anything you want to share? Anything you know you want to add to the conversation? It's absolutely. Um, I can even put you in contact with, with Mike. So, um, that would be great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Mike. And, and, and again, I think as, as much as I, as, as I enjoy doing what I do, I can see that you have the same enthusiasm for, for the subject as well. And I appreciate that you're doing what you're doing, reaching out to the people to try to, to try to, to keep this history in the public consciousness and what you're doing with the podcast and what you're doing with these, these interviews. Uh, segments is just I think it's really admirable so congratulations on doing that I I hope you continue thank you thank you it's um it's been a fun project I mean like like
0: you know again like um just offering for you know on on that talk like hey you guys have anything you want to come on and talk about like like look at that like we just you know just spent an evening here like you know and i don't mean this in a bad way but like nerding out on world war one aviation this has been awesome so (laughs) this is this is yeah exactly it's it's just like you said like i'm i'm all about it this is you know so it's really really cool thank thank you so much mike um yeah and and, um we'll we'll be definitely be in touch and and uh you know keep keep the the communication going so wonderful all right um if you will uh just stay with me i'm just going to um, stop recording. So, all right. Thanks again.